7 o'clock. So welcome to everybody online. Welcome to everybody that's in here tonight. Uh, any of you that are in this group for the first time tonight? Very good. One or two? Very good. So first of all, welcome. And second, let us warn you in advance, you're liable to experience us just a little different than other meetings of other fellowships you may have attended. The primary reason you're liable to have a different experience is that's what we intend. We intend for you to have a very different experience here. We've been doing it for a lot of years, and I've been assured that that's generally what's delivered. So um, what we do is we take a look at the suggested instruction for a step or so a week directly out of this book, and we use this book in 12-step recovery. Why? Yeah, the process described by the authors of this book has been proven to work for addicts of the hopeless variety, addicts to alcohol and other substances. So we don't reinvent the wheel here. All we do is I show you how I find my experience in the book and encourage you to have your experience. And we're, we're in step one tonight, so we're going to spend a little time on the history so you understand why we do what we do and who tells the story in this book so that you can... If you've had a, anyone in here had a difficult time with recovery, like bounced a little? So, so I mean, that sometimes is true, right? And so we want to at least show you the experience these people had because they were people who had a difficult time with recovery, but they were restored. And they tell their story, not our story. So our effort here is to align with theirs. Make sense? So the first thing I like to show people, especially if you're kind of new or re-experiencing 12-step recovery is this is the original 12-step program. Every other fellowship since then may have made workbooks and called them programs, but everything's based on the experience, the shared witness, the testimony of these authors. And they call this book not the big book, which we lovingly call it in fellowships. They call it Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how many thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. So that's kind of a profound title for people who are struggling in addiction. Yes? Rather than the big book, because people say it's a big book. But if you knew this is the story of how many thousands before you recovered, then it would make more sense to see who was telling the story and how that came about, yeah? Okay, so the other thing I like to show people is why we do this the way we do as opposed to some standard meeting format. If you'll go to the forward to the first edition in your book, it's on page XIII. And the authors say, we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. So I call your attention not to what they said, although having recovered from a seemingly hopeless state state of mind and body would be cool, but I want to focus your attention on who we is, because every we you've ever seen in a room is not us, it's them, the first 100. And then we get confused because we hear old Barney saying, this is what my sponsor told me. <laughs> and then I'm doing something silly that is not part of the witness of these people. And I'm not trying to poke fun, I'm just telling you there's a difference between fellowship and program. The program of recovery is described in these pages and the experience of it is witnessed to by the first 100 and their experience with the first several thousand. So no matter how many times people say, this is a we program, we're we, they are deceiving you because they've been deceived. 
Does that make sense? Okay. So then it says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. They put precisely how we have recovered in parentheses or in italics. They do that to call our attention how important it is. They're showing other alcoholics precisely how they've recovered. Notice how it didn't say to tell other alcoholics. So this is the thing. People get this book and they try and read it and they think they're reading a book about other people and then they just add their own experience and it doesn't work. Any of you had that experience? So you always thought you are just reading a story about people or whatever. But, but what these people are saying is they wrote this book so that you could sit down. No one can read this book on their own. They have to be shown. So to show other alcoholics precisely how they recovered, I would have to have recovered in a similar manner, and then I would have to sit down and show you the same as I was shown, the purpose of the book. So that's why we do the meeting the way we do, to take us back to our roots. Does it make sense? Okay, so I'm going to go from there to another little piece of history that I think gets lost sometimes. And I want to go to the forward to the second edition, but I want to be an XVII about the bottom of the page, about the one, two, third paragraph down. And what they discovered is it says it was now time. Now, this, the, the first issue was published in 1939. The second edition wasn't published until 1955. So there's 15 years of history between those two. So they had now many hundreds of thousands recovered, if that makes sense. So they got a lot of history, and they're going to tell us what that history is, and I want to call your attention to it. So it was now time the struggling groups thought to place their message and unique experience before the world. This determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publish, publication of this volume. So three years they did it just sitting in groups, praying in each other's kitchens, helping who they could help, and then they decided to write a book to try and help get the message out, and they published this book in 1939, and now we're in the publication for 1955, and we're in that forward, okay? So it says the membership had then reached about 100 men and women, which we just discovered, right? And then the, the fledging society, which had been nameless, now began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So for people that don't know why it's so important that we dish it straight, is the fellowship was named after the book, not the other way around. There's nothing meaningful in the fellowship if you want to know precisely how they recovered. It's all in the book. The fellowship was named after the book, not the other way around. So when people tell you, I'm in the program, meaning they're sitting in the third row two back, <laughs> no, you're in the fellowship. Does that make sense? Okay. Why is that important? If I think I'm in the program and all I'm doing is showing up, I'm still going to be restless, irritable, and discontented. And I'm not going to have the release these people found. I'm not going to have the purpose these people found. And I'm not going to be able to sit there very long. Any of you had that experience? Okay. All right. So I want to jump from there now to the doctor's opinion. And I want to go to the very beginning of the doctor's opinion, which is XXV, and read what the doctor's opinion says. Now, keep in mind, the doctor will tell you who he was, but what he was not was alcoholic. But the, the alcoholics who asked the doctor to share will then come in in the middle and share their opinion of the doctor's opinion. So I want to show you all that so you can see how convoluted it gets. If we don't use the text, we can get it lost. We can get the message lost really quick. 
And, and the guy that wrote most of this book, even though it was edited by the first 100, and they agreed on every word, the guy that wrote it was a stock analyst and a very successful one. And he was a famous atheist. And what he did was he laid out the case, based on his experience, why it was more logical to believe than not to believe based on his experience. So he did not remain an atheist, and he tells that in here. He came to believe in power, and he lays that out. But if we don't lay the case out properly, we lose people. Does that make sense? Okay. So it says, we of Alcoholics Anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate, uh, in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So the first question would be, the first 100 believed when they wrote the book that when they reached you, you would be interested in the medical estimate to see if it made sense because they're going to tell this fairly fantastic story about the spirit coming into them and raising them to a level of life better than the best they've ever known. And so they wanted you to have a scientific opinion of their experience. Does that make sense? So would you like to hear more about what they said? Well, then we're right on with the authors, aren't we? Okay. So, so convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had the experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. So this is Dr. William Silkworth. Alcoholism was not recognized as a disease at that time, nor was addiction, but they were had a lot of veterans coming back from World War One, and they they were trying to treat them, and that's who he is, right? He's trying to treat our population before it was recognized as a behavioral disorder. So I, I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. So try and go with what the doctor's telling you. How many of you had doctors tell you you needed to change what you were doing or you're going to be dead soon. So this is the leading physician in the country and he's telling this cat, I, I believe this man hopeless, right? And that's why the profundity of the witness is that the medical opinion was this guy, not a chance. And so you won't understand the miraculous recovery he witnesses to if you don't understand who it is that's saying this guy's hopeless, okay? So in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. How many of you have struggled a little, maybe bounced a time or two in your recovery? Okay, how many of you have felt diminished by people when you came back and people weren't as kind as they might have been? Okay, so let's not be that guy and let's not be mad at the ones that weren't, but let's remember that the author of this book was on his third treatment so sometimes we bounce a little, okay? Right. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become a basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. Hmm. I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark an, a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may have a remedy for thousands of such situations. 
You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. That is a doctor, a medical doctor, witnessing to you that he has bore witness to a miracle. And then he prophesied that that solution was so profound that he believed it was going to solve problems for thousands. We are among those thousands. We're in the millions now. Some of you are feeling that. So, so there's a lot of power in this testimony. There's always power in testimony. So I want you to understand why we don't change their testimony. Okay? So now we're going to look at what the doctor's opinion was and the alcoholic's opinion of the doctor's opinion because alcoholics are prone to share their opinions. <laughs> right? So the physician who at our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So they're telling us that we really have to believe that I am bodily and mentally different. That's their, they, that, that released some of them to know I could not use different than I did because I had a condition of mind and body that would not allow me to use any other way. That doesn't excuse it, but it explains it, and now I understand that my addiction is a calling, not a curse, and once I encounter the power and I commit to go introduce others to the power that restores, I now have purpose in the suffering, therefore no suffering. Does that make sense? Okay. So it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. Did it satisfy you to be told that? Come on, most of us have been told something like that, right? Or were all of you very polite and kind of chill in your active addiction? We're a little bit inexplicable, even to ourselves, right? But so people think, oh, they're, I don't know that we use outright mental defectives, but I think we should add it to the lexicon. What do you think? <laughs> These things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us, but we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. So one of the things I think our fellowship does terribly is help people understand what they are telling us we won't get well till we know this based on their witness so I'm going to go over to the doctor's opinion now uh, the bottom of the page XXVII and it says of course an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor how many of you have experienced physical craving or whatever, right? We fill in the blank. We, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be a maximum benefit. We believe, and so suggested a few years ago, that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy. That's medical speak for these people when they ingest alcohol have an abnormal reaction to alcohol because that's what, that's what a, re, a, a allergic reaction is. It's an abnormal reaction. Do I have any drinkers in the room? 
Did you find, or did people watching you drink find that when you drank, it energized you? It's a sedative. That's an abnormal reaction to a sedative. Where's my opiate addicts? Did you confuse people that when you got a little hookup that you got real energetic and everyone thought, oh my God, she's doing so good. (laughs) That's an abnormal reaction to a very powerful sedative. And we could go on and on, but it's important wherever you are, my meth addicts, if you're true meth addicts, you found that that stuff calmed you down. I watch people slam meth and nod out just like all the heroin addicts. That is an abnormal reaction, sorry. Right? So if we don't understand that I have this abnormal reaction, I don't stand a chance. I don't know, I need a healer, right? And they're not gonna heal my abnormal reaction, but I'm gonna be empowered to avoid such difficulties, right? I'm not gonna put myself in that position, hopefully, once I seek the healer and find purpose. Okay, so it says that, uh, It's a manifestation of an allergy. The phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. So how many of you have ever put alcohol in your body or some substance and then found you took more than you intended? And I know there's someone out here who said, I never took more than I intended. But but sometimes we broke the budget, right? Sometimes we had to go, yeah, okay. So these allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, does that happen for you? Once having lost their self-confidence, does that happen for you? And I would, you know, people who don't like to admit to a loss of self-confidence, finding yourself in treatment environments, um, fellowships of recovery, that's sometimes an indicator of having lost some self-confidence. Because most of us don't aspire to these fellowships in our youth, (laughs) right? Their reliance upon things human, their their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Have you had that in that? Okay, so what we have indicated now is I'm not a moderate drinker if I've had those things. They haven't told me anything about it, but I can cross off moderate. Okay. All right, so, so... What, Sean, you don't think I should cross it off that quick? (laughs) So I want to go over to page 20 and 21, and let's do some more self-diagnosis. We've already clicked off the moderate drinker, but we'll start with the moderate drinker at the bottom of 20. Moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. So we've kind of crossed us off that list. We'll go to the next one. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may cause him to die a few years before his time. If a sufficiently strong reason, ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warning of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. So that's the one who confuses us. Because guess what happens when he needs a little medical help? They send him the same detox with me. And then from detox, they send him to residential. And then pretty soon he starts showing up in the 12-step fellowships. And he starts talking about a true experience. It's his experience, but it's not my experience. He doesn't pick up no matter what. 
Nothing changed in me, I just don't drink. You met him? But the condition was that given sufficient reason, he could stop or moderate. How many of you blew past all those barriers of sufficient reason? So we can cross hard drinker off the list. How many of you still think it might be a hard drinker? Because you don't think you've lost control all the time? Come on, somebody's in here. I can. Oh, never mind, I want to tell you too soon how I know, but I know. Uh, so sometimes we're thinking, well, yeah, when I put it in my body, I, I don't have control over it all the time, but it doesn't happen every time. Is that anybody? So all I want to ask is one more question. Do you know which time? And if you don't know which time, did you ever really have control, or was it an illusion? Ooh. None of us have chased illusions, right, Lance? <laughs> the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. And many of us chase it into the gates of insanity or death, and here we are, right? Restored from that. Okay. All right, so but what about the real alcoholic? You ever hear that guy in the back of the room? I'm John. I'm a real alcoholic. <laughs> He's probably read the book. He might just said it because he sounded cool and he had that raspy voice. They always have the raspy voice. Like he just smoked 10 cigarettes. <laughs> he may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So they're tying me back to the manifestation of the allergy. He may have had years of successful drinking, whatever that looks like for some people, right? And he, he may have not drank very much and then started, but at some point... Control's gone once they start, and then they find it difficult to stop and stay stopped. Okay? So now they're going to tell this book. They write the book in first person and then in third person. And I like people to pay attention. Instead of having people change the writing, look at what they did. They want us, if I read it in third person, it's not as assaulting on my ego. So they use a fr phrase here. Here's the fellow who's been puzzling you. Who's the fellow who's been puzzling me when I'm in active addiction? <laughs> Fucking A, me. <laughs> but I always think it's out there. So they wrote the book so I could safely self-discover while I'm focused on you. <laughs> and you're there to help me knowing my delusion. Does that make sense? Remember, this guy was a stock analyst. He sold million-dollar deals to people. He knew what he was doing. We don't need to change eyes to wheeze and all the bullshit people teach. Just read the freaking book. Lay out the case. This guy is brilliant. Okay. Especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. Can you think of any? Come on. Dude, they're on the court dockets. They're on everything. What do you mean they're in their fourth step? They're in the newspapers? He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Any of you experienced a little personality change while drinking? Okay. He's seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. How many of you go, you know, I drink a lot, but I'm never insanely drunk. I can hold it. Where's my, where's my drinkers who went to the detox and drove themselves? 
And then they get the blood alcohol and, dude, you should be hospitalized. <laughs> Hence my arrival. <laughs> Car is still in the lane. You know. the, his, his disposition while drinking resembled his normal nature, but little. How many of you know what your normal nature is? I love that with alcoholics and addicts. What is normal nature? Have you always felt like something was just a half a bubble off? <laughs> so normal human nature is, is childlike rather than childish. Right? We, we respond to things in ways that are, you know, not outside the realm of reasonable, whatever it is. How many of you sometimes in great calamity have no response at all and over really silly things just go right off the rails? <laughs> that might be an indication. <laughs> so what I want to do, since I could go through that a long way, but which seems to be resonating with some of you. And uh, I mean, if we're going to tell you of your diagnosis, I don't want to belabor the point. So let's go to page 23, and I'm going to look, um, I'm going to look actually at the first paragraph, and we'll just read through it. Um, These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. So the insanity of alcoholism, of addiction, is not what happens after I take the first drink. That's the stuff that happens to crazy drunk people like me. It's a natural consequence of the way I drink that I'm going to go cause calamity. But that is not the insanity. Does it make sense? So, so it says, therefore, the main problem the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than his body. So I'm certifiably insane if I know myself alcoholic before I take the first drink. The doctor recognizes it as restless, irritable, and discontent unless I can get ease and comfort. Right? Okay. So if you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he'll offer you any one of a hundred alibis. How many of you were loaded with reasons why you went out and used again? How many of you really knew why? I mean, you literally, once you were high and you knew you had to go show up somewhere, the, the excuse ma machine just started kicking. <laughs> right? Okay. Because you knew there was going to be an explanation demanded, right? But you didn't really know why? Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of a man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. Okay, who laughed and who found that annoying? Who laughed and who found it annoying? Okay, some of you, if you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he'll laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. So the three who are honest about laughing, the rest of you guys are sick too. <laughs> You're irritated and refuse to talk. See what they're saying? They know us because they know them. Properly armed with the facts about themselves, they can be uniquely useful to another. Make sense? Okay, so once in a while he may tell the truth. How many of you tried telling the truth? <laughs> Why'd you do that? <laughs> Fuck, I don't know. 
Went out for cigarettes, ended up in Mexico. <laughs> Can't explain it. And the truth, strange to say, is usually he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they're satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts they really do not know why they do it. So now they're describing the sensory battle between the head and the heart. I can make up the excuse, but I know I'm lying. I know I don't know. I know I'm baffled. I don't want to feel it here. I'm just going to push it down. Yeah. Once this malady has a real hold, they're a baffled lot. There's an obsession that somehow, someday, they'll beat the game. And that's when I meet the guy in the meeting that tells me he just doesn't pick up no matter what. And it feeds my obsession. So I need to be careful to get my program from the book and my fellowship from whatever I choose, but understand the difference in the two. But, but they often suspect they're down for the count. How true this is, few realize. In a vague way, their families and friends sense that these drinkers are abnormal. How many of you had some families and friends that sensed you might be just a little different? But everybody hopefully waits the day the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and assert his power of will. How many of you had a relative that was really the hard drinker and every family member gauged you from that experience? You know Uncle Billy? He started having trouble. He just put the plug in the jug. He's he fine now. <laughs> and we're sitting there thinking, fuck old Uncle Billy. <laughs> right? You got me? Jay knows. Jay's even got an Uncle Billy. Okay, so, so the tragic truth is that if the man be a real alcoholic, the happy day may not arrive. He has lost control. What does it mean to have lost something? You got to remember these guys use the words they mean. They mean the words they say. They didn't say he misplaced control. It's gone. So it says at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic, he passes into a state where the most powerful desire to stop drinking is absolutely no avail. Where are my alcoholics? How many of you have actually passed into that powerful desire to stop can manifest absolutely no outwardly action to show it. Okay? This tragic situation has already arrived in practically every case long before it's suspected. How many of you thought you were just fooling around, just, and then, I, man, I gotta get serious. <laughs> and then realized that no amount of seriousness was gonna stop that next run. Okay? So they got this whole thing in italics, and I want you to get it because sometimes we cite it, but the reason I might want to do the steps rather than just sit and not drink no matter what, if I am this guy and I don't find a spiritual solution, the time is coming that there will be a pop quiz on my spiritual status, and if I am not doing something to enlarge it, I will have a blank spot, and I'll be out there again. The fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice and drink. So that means everyone that tells you I choose not to drink today is either not like you or they don't know what this book says. And my only question to them is, if you choose not today, why didn't you choose before you ended up in this fellowship? Why didn't you choose before you lost your job and your wife and your... 
I mean, if it was really a choice, why didn't you choose it before you burned your whole life down? Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We're unable at certain times, so they're telling me it's coming, but they won't tell me when, to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago were without defense against the first drink. I say that because I came into a fellowship where people told me, when you want to drink, Joe, think it through. Play the tape. You ever heard that? If you haven't had your, if you don't remember your last drink or whatever, you, have, you haven't had it yet or some silly thing like that, they just told me that at a certain point I will be unable to bring to consciousness the ability to feel the gravity of about what's, what's about to happen to me with sufficient force that memory. Doesn't matter how many tapes I watch, I know how it ends. Joe gets loaded. Seen the movie. I remember my last drink and the one before that and the one before that. Didn't stop me because I could not bring to consciousness with sufficient force the memory of suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. See how they laid it out so clearly. Has nothing to do with memory. This isn't cognitive behavioral therapy. This is, and I, listen, we're in a behavioral health center. I'm not mad at that. Let's, let's look at all our human behaviors that we can improve on, but if we don't get a spiritual solution, folks, and we belong here, we're screwed. So, I'm going to go from there to, let's go to more about alcoholism. So, chapter 3, and it says, most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were real alcoholics. See, we don't want to read that until we've seen how they define a real alcoholic. So how many of you found yourself in the could-be-a-real-alcoholic category? So it says most of us have been unwilling to admit that we were. Is that true? Did you go from bragging about how much you drink to lying about how much you drink? Okay. okay. That's, that's kind of the journey, right? All right, so no person likes to think he's bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Now that's true, except in an area that I want to believe I'm bodily and mentally different. If I want to believe I'm superior, but I don't want to believe I'm inferior. Right? Does that make sense? So therefore, it's not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. So do you share with them a history of countless vain attempts to, whether it's drugs or whatever, alcohol, some of you don't relate to alcohol. You know, if, if you're a heroin addict, Countless vain attempts to, you know, prove that you can slam dope like a gentleman. The idea that somehow, someday, he'll control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. You can read right past that and not understand the wisdom of that statement. The great obsession is not that I can control or not that I can enjoy, but that I can control and enjoy. Mutually exclusive. I might control, but I won't enjoy. And when I enjoy, there's no control. But the obsession is, I'm going to do it different. I'm going to drink beer. I'm going to drink wine. I'm going to only take 20 bucks. Anybody? So the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. 
Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The only way that's going to happen is to know that it's an illness and to know that I, even knowing I have an illness, I cannot arrest the illness on my own. Therefore, I need a healer. Does that make sense? So they lay this case out, and they said the first step in recovery is that they learned they had to fully concede to their innermost selves. You can't do that based on a lie. I could tell you all kinds of stories, but I always know, for the most part, when I'm really crushed if I'm trying to lie to me. So how come over the years, every time we walk in a room, they got a first step up there, and it doesn't say we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost self? What's the step usually say when we walk in a room? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Their lives, what are their two first steps? What they had the hidden first step, and then we, we got the first step on the wall, and then we have the experience that's required in order to embark on your journey and come into your awakening. Okay. okay. So the delusion that we are like other people, or presently maybe, has to be smashed. You know that I love that people try and smash their own delusions. <laughs> the nature of delusion is that you lie to you and you don't know you're lying. So you may well be delusional, but if you're trying to smash your own delusion, you're delusional. <laughs> There's going to need a power greater than me to smash my delusion. My life has proven. Does it make sense? All right. So. I want to go from there to, because we're taking a weird jaunt through things here today. Let's go back to Bill's story now for a minute. And let's in, let's see, looking at the time. I, let, let's, let's talk about when Abby comes to visit Bill. So here's Bill on page eight. And he's, Bill Wilson is this, alcoholic, the stockbroker, war hero. He's sitting there dry, dying of alcoholism in New York, been in treatment a couple times. It's not taken, but this particular night he's got liquor hidden in the house. He's, he's hooked up and he's going to describe his encounter with the person that introduced him to the power that eventually restored his life. So it says, near the end of that bleak November on page eight, second to last paragraph, I sat drinking in my kitchen. How many of you sat just getting high in your house by yourself? <laughs> With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and, that night and the next day. How many of you, when you were using all by yourself, were really glad you had an ample supply? <laughs> you didn't have to go out in this condition. This is going to take... Okay. So my wife was at work, so he's setting the stage. I wondered whether I dared hide a bottle, full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I'd need it before daylight. Where's my drinkers? Were you guys hiders? Drinkers are hiders. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. They wrote that in italics for a reason. How many of you, no matter how bad you got, maintained that one friend? But at least I'm not that bad yet. <laughs> so his old school friend is that guy for Bill. As bad as Bill is, and he's bad, at least I'm not as bad as Ebby, right? right? So Ebby's sober, 
And that's weird. And it has to be weird because when you're drunk and drinking and someone comes over, their condition is irrelevant. Unless it's really special, right? So it was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. So you've got to get how profound it is that this guy's at his door much less sober. Rumor had it that he'd been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he'd escaped. <laughs> of course he'd have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him, unmindful of his welfare. I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was that time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. Think about what an oasis is and what he's pondering on. Most, most oasis are illusions, right? You're, you're, out, you're out there and you just drink the sand. Cause. But every once in a while, the oasis is really a place with shade and water. So he's saying, Ebby's showing up and he's got a stash. Dude, we hit the jackpot. So, and they said drinkers are like that. So you can relate to him. Does it make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the door opened and he stood there, fresh skinned and glowing. Now let's be honest. No matter what your persuasion, to describe your drinking buddy as fresh skinned and glowing is weird. It's just a weird description. There was something about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. What had happened? So all this is going on in his head while he's standing there at the door welcoming Ebby in. I pushed a drink across the table. He refused it. Disappointed but curious, I wondered what had got into the fellow. He wasn't himself. Have you ever been disappointed but curious? Okay, I'll bite. Why? Right? It's a little weird. Come, what's all this about, I queried. He looked straight at me, simply but smilingly. He said, I've got religion. That's a buzzkill, right? No matter, <laughs> no matter what your religious... I'm sitting there drunk and drinking. I got this whole night planned out. Wife's gone. Bottle by the head of the bed. I'm going to just pound it with old Ebby. And now he's got religion. Right? Regardless of your... Okay. So his response is, I was aghast. So that was it. Last summer, an alcoholic crackpot. Now I suspected a little cracked about religion. He had that starry-eyed look. Yes, the old boy was on fire all right, but bless his heart, let him rant. Besides, my gin would last longer than his preaching. So he had first prejudged the situation. Ebby couldn't be here. Eb, this story can't be real. Then he prejudged it based on the religious, oh, okay, that's it. He's just crazy with religion instead of crazy with alcohol. He, he's prejudging it each time. Have you ever prejudged a situation? God sent you a teacher and you go, yeah, that's, I don't relate to them. <laughs> so this is what's, what's happening with him. But then the really bad thing happens. He did no ranting. Now he's not behaving as I expect him to. He didn't show up drunk. And then he told me he had religion, and now he's not preaching. Shit. 
Now I'm starting to wonder what to do with my drink, right? <laughs> Maybe I'll have to go out of the room and get the one from the bed. But he did know Randy. In a matter-of-fact way, he told how two men had appeared in court persuading the judge to suspend his commitment. They, told of a simple re they had told of a simple religious idea and a practical program of action. Ebby came to Bill when Bill opened the door and he saw him standing there fresh-skinned and glowing. What Bill did not know, the famous atheist, is he had walked straight into the presence of God. He had encountered the power, and although he didn't know what it was, he knew it was inexplicably different. And so after he got to talking to him, he found out that he had been just like Bill and he indeed had been committed. And these people came and got him and saved him from that and told him, I'm saving you, but you must go and do likewise for others. And so that's what happened. So when Bill got told of AA, the program, he didn't get told a bunch of nonsense about what meeting to go to or what page to read or have you got a sponsor yet. He got told that God lives in you and I'm going to introduce you to a manner of living that will prove that fact to you through you. A religious idea and a practical program of action. Tell them the truth, guys. Oh, if I say that, they'll leave. Dude, if they're going to leave because of that, they're not ready. Believe in the one he sent. If he sent you to them, they're ready to hear it from you. Believe that. Okay, so he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. Notice how it didn't say he came to pass his opinion on. Didn't come to pass his meeting list. He came to pass the experience of redemption he had received, which is why he's in New York not drinking, which is why he's not in alcoholic jail. It's kind of a profound experience. He says, I was shocked but interested. Have you ever been shocked but interested? Certainly I was interested. I had to be. I was hopeless. He talked for hours. Childhood memories rose before me. I could almost hear the sound of the preacher's voice as I sat on still Sundays way over there on the hillside. There was that proffered temperance pledge I never signed. My grandfather's good-natured contempt of some church folk and their doings. His insistence that the spheres really had their music, but his denial of the preacher's right to tell him how he must listen. His fearlessness as he spoke of these things just before he died. These recollections welled up from the past. They made me swallow hard. He's describing for you his first revelation of the spirit in him. As he remembered his grandfather and his fearlessness at the point of his passing, telling him, I'm not going to let the religious people tell me how to worship my God. I'm good. And that came to him, and it welled up on him, and it says it made him swallow hard. How many of you have had an experience so profound, a revelatory experience, that it caused an emotional experience in you? So he's describing to you a tangible encounter of this redeeming force. Make sense? So now it's getting hard to deny, right? So that wartime day in the old Winchester Cathedral came back again. I'd always believed in a power greater than myself, I'd often pondered these things. I was not an atheist. Few people really are, for that means the blind faith in the strange proposition that this universe originated in a cipher and aimlessly rushes nowhere. My intellectual heroes, the chemists, the astronomers, even the evolutionists, suggested vast laws and forces at work. Despite contrary indications, I had little doubt that a mighty purpose and rhythm underlay all. 
How could there be so much of precise and immutable law and no intelligence? So he's starting to open his mind to something, if not everything. Fair enough? Because some of us aren't ready for everything, and some of us have been harmed by religious theology and dogma, and we, we just flatly reject. So Bill has had these profound experiences, and so basically what happened is God met Bill where he was. And then he's telling the story of what it's like to be met where you are and then grow. So he says, I simply had to believe in the spirit of the universe who knew neither time nor limitation, but that was as far as I had gone. With ministers and the world's religion, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me who was love, superhuman strength, and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut against such a theory. To Christ, I conceded the certainty of a great man not too closely followed by those who claimed him. How many of you have had that revelation? If my only example of Christ and the certainty of who Christ is is from other humans, I might be misled, correct? Okay. So his moral teaching, most excellent for myself, I had adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult. The rest I disregarded. How many of you can relate to him? So that was the entirety of his theological journey. The wars which had been fought, the burnings and the chicanery and the religious dispute had facilitated made me sick. I honestly doubted whether on balance the religions of mankind had done any good. Judging from what I had seen in Europe and since, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. The brotherhood of man a grim jest. If there was a devil, he seemed boss universal and he certainly had me. Now he's talking to me about me, the addict, who found it easier to believe in a devil than in a loving God. Any of you relate to that experience on earth? Because you don't have to be a theologian to know what that feels like, right? But my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Bill was the guy the doctor said he had come to regard as hopeless, and yet when Bill had this profound experience, he's also the guy who went back to the treatment center and convinced the treatment center people they should let him go talk to the patients. <laughs> Which is pretty weird if you've ever been in a psychiatric facility. You say, hey, I got this idea, doc. If you let me talk to the patients, we're all going to get well. <laughs> but they let him. If you don't believe in he makes a way where there's no way, his human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he'd admitted complete defeat. So what they're telling us that instruction on the wall we admitted is never enough. I've done it a thousand times. I've declared it. I've admitted it. But I had not fully conceded it. Does that make sense? Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he'd ever known. Any of you ever heard those arguments over the years about whether we recover or we're always recovering? Okay, it's clearly recovered, but they're talking about this experience, not an end to illness. They're talking about redeemed, taken from what was thought waste and raised, right? Extract something infinitely valuable, taken from a scrap heap, raised to a level of life. Does that make sense? So it's not an argument. If you haven't had the experience of redemption, you would still argue it was a medical thing. But you've got to remember when they wrote this book, alcoholism wasn't a medical diagnosis. So they never were talking about that anyway. They're talking about a redeemed or reclaimed life. 
So had this power originated in him, so Bill's now thinking, he's asking, what's up? I'm believing what he's saying, I'm feeling some kind of way, you know, I'm hopeless, I'm not even sure what he's talking about, I'm thinking about granddad, shit. <laughs> but he's sober, right? So he says, has this power originated in him? Obviously it had not. So he was honest enough with himself to know this cat is worse than me. And I'm drunk and drinking, and he's sitting there, and he's not reaching for mine. He's stone cold sober. He just told me this fantastical story, and something in my spirit is resonating with this man. Yeah. Any of you have met a sponsor that took you through the steps and had that experience and never had it explained to you? There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and this was none at all. That floored me. It began to look as though the religious people were right after all. Here was something at work in the human heart which had done the impossible. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. So he went from conceptual miracles to experiential miracles. And he says, never mind the musty past. Here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. He shouted great tidings. That sounds a little funky, doesn't it? But the fact is... How many of you remember in the pits of your addiction, still drinking, knowing it ain't going to turn out well, no, idea, you know, no hope that this is going to go well, not the same thing expecting a different result. This is going to suck. I'm going to be in big trouble. I'm going to have to lie for days to lowest. But fuck it, I got lots of gin. And he went from that to, whoa. This guy has been miraculously redeemed. And he came to me to tell me that. He came to share that experience with me. I saw that my friend was much more than inwardly reorganized. He was on a different footing. His roots grasp a new soil. He may be standing on the cornerstone. For some of you that know. Despite the living example of my friend, there remained in me vestiges of my old prejudice. So I believe it, I see it, but there's that other jerk, right? The old prejudice. The word God still aroused a certain antipathy. He didn't get excited about it. Didn't like the word God. Why do we come to believe in power in step two? Because some people don't like the word God. But everybody likes power. I'm making it up. <laughs> That's the way they wrote the book. When the thought was expressed that there might be a God personal to me, this feeling was intensified. I didn't like the idea. I could go for such conceptions as creative intelligence, universal mind, or spirit of the universe, but I resisted a thought of the czar of the heavens, however loving his sway might be. I've since talked with many scores of men who felt the same way. My friends suggested... What then seemed a novel idea, he said, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Now, guys, that's been mistaught for years. They say a God of your understanding, a God of your conception. That's not what he said. He said, the guy suggested to him, if the God that you're thinking of is not serving you, then that's fine because you're not here. He's not here to serve you. You're here to serve him, but he's going to come meet you where you are, and you'll figure all this out. But basically... He said, just start where you are. He's, he's okay with the fact that there's some law and some rhythm and, some, and he's going to grow into that because there's a practical 
plan of action, a manner of living that proves the power to us through us. Make sense? So that statement hit me hard. It melted the icy intellectual mountain in whose shadow I had lived and shivered many years. I stood in the sunlight at last. It was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Notice the P is capitalized. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. It's a beginning. Don't stay there. Don't live with a God of your understanding. Don't listen to the nonsense about light bulbs and doorknobs. They're going to give you precise instructions about where and how to find this power. The power lives in you and through you. If you will embrace it and grow in relationship to the power in you, it's the power to live. There's a power in you that wants you dead. If you strengthen the power that wants to live, you'll live a life of purpose. It's just that simple. So one more thing, he says, thus I was convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. So now a lot of the delusion is gone, right? At long last I saw, Abby sitting across the table, I felt and then I believed. We were never expected to come to believe without that demonstration. We teach you to talk to you about the power we call God without giving you a demonstration. He saw, he felt, and then he believed, and his understanding grew as he asked God in because it was not his understanding, but God's understanding through him. Yes. Next week, we'll look at two and three and whatever else. <laughs>